Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. This is Miss Ziegler here with the Time Machine Talk Show, and this week we have a lot of reading to do. So I may not be able to podcast all of the reading this week because of some events that are going on at school. We have parent night and a couple other things. So therefore, if you are reading along and struggling with something, please come see me in the learning commons. I will be there until five every day except for Friday, and I'd be more than happy to help you. So come see me if you need help. All right. All right. That's a deal. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start off. Your reading starts with the documents on page 198. And those documents will help you start to get familiar with documents as a whole. And this week we are working on document-based questions. So that would be really good practice to go through those documents and answer the corresponding questions. I will give you extra credit if you do those corresponding questions. And I'm sure your other teachers would too. You just have to let them know that you did them. And tell them that uh, Miss Sigler said it was good practice. So see if you can talk them into it. Anyways, um, so you're reading actually, like the chapter actually starts on page 217, and it starts with the society in China. Now, in my class, we talked about this pretty extensively. However, the textbook is going to give you specific details. And as you know, you need to be specific for your SAQs and your DBQs and all your essays. So make sure that you read that and answer the first reading question, which is... Describe and explain the social hierarchy of China during the second wave era. The answer to that question is from page 218 all the way to page 224. I'm not going to focus on that on the podcast today, though, since we've talked about it extensively in class. I'm going to start on page 224 with the caste system in India. So the first question we are answering about India says, what set of ideas underlies India's caste-based society? So let's start on page 224 where it says class and caste in India. All right, so here we go. It says, India's social organization shared certain broad features with that of China. In both civilizations, birth determined social status for most people. Little social mobility was available for the vast majority. Sharp distinctions and great inequalities characterized social life, and religious and cultural traditions defined these inequalities as natural, eternal, and ordained by the gods. That's a really important list because that tells you some similarities between India and China. So I would bullet point that in your notes. Even though it doesn't have to do with any of the reading questions, just bullet point it. So first bullet point that they share is that birth determines your social status. Second bullet point, little social mobility. That means that you couldn't really move up in the social status very well. You could also put uh, for another bullet point that there were inequalities in the social life and that religion pretty much backed this system up. That's what it means that it was ordained by the gods. Basically, religion is supporting this system of social structure. So as we go on, it says, despite these similarities, the organization, flavor, and texture of ancient Indian society was distinctive 
compared to almost all other civilizations. So distinctive, there's our word for different. These unique aspects of Indian society have long been embodied in what we now call the caste system, a term that comes from the Portuguese word casta, which means race or purity of blood. That social organization emerged over thousands of years and in some respects has endured into modern times. So here's the difference with India. It's called a caste system instead of a class hierarchy or a class or social structure. Okay, so caste, C-A-S-T-E. On the next page, 225, it says caste as Varna. Now remember, we're looking for ideas that underlie India's caste system. Here we go. The origins of the caste system are at best hazy. An earlier idea that caste evolved from a racially defined encounter between light-skinned Aryan invaders and the darker-hued native peoples has been challenged in recent years. But no clear alternative theory has emerged. Perhaps the best we can say at this point is that the distinctive social system of India grew out of the interactions among South Asia's immensely varied cultures together with the development of economic and social differences among these people as the inequalities of civilization spread throughout the Genghis River Valley and beyond. Notions of race, however, seem less central to the growth of the caste system than those of economic specialization and of culture. So, what ideas underlie it? Well, it talks about economics versus race, right? So put that down. We're going to keep reading. Whatever the precise origins of the caste system, by 500 BCE, the idea that society was forever divided into four ranked classes, or varnas, was deeply embedded in Indian thinking. Everyone was born into and remained within one of these classes for life. At the top of this hierarchical system were the Brahmins, priests whose rituals and sacrifice alone could ensure the proper functioning of the world. They were followed by the Kshatriya class, which were warriors and rulers charged with protecting and governing society. Next was the Vashaya class, originally commoners who cultivated the land. These three classes came to be regarded as pure Aryans and were called the twice-born, for they experienced not only a physical birth, but also formal initiation into their respective varnas and status as people of Aryan descent. Far below these twice-born in the hierarchy of varna groups were the sudras, native peoples incorporated into the margins of Aryan society in very subordinate positions. Subordinate means like low role, like they were, they had to answer to the top classes. Regarded as servants of their social betters, they were not allowed to hear or repeat the Vedas or to take part in Aryan rituals. So little were they valued that a Brahmin who killed a Sudra was penalized as if he had killed a cat or a dog. Vedas are the Hindu scriptures, just so you know. According to the Varna theory, these four classes were formed from the body of the god Purusha and were therefore eternal and changeless. Although these divisions are widely recognized in India, even today historians have noted considerable social flux in ancient Indian history. Members of the Brahmin and Kasutra groups, for example, were frequently in conflict over which 
ranked highest in the Varna hierarchy, and only slowly did the Brahmins emerge clearly in the top position. Although theoretically purely Aryan, both groups absorbed various tribal peoples as Indian civilization expanded. Tribal medicine men or sorcerers found a place as Brahmins, while warrior groups entered the Kasatra Varna. The Vaishavarna, originally defined as cultivators, evolved into a business class with a prominent place for merchants, while the Sudra Varna became the domain of peasant farmers. Finally, a whole new category, ranking lower even than Sudras, emerged in the so-called untouchables, men and women who did the work considered most unclean and polluting, such as cremating corpses, dealing with the skins of dead animals and serving as executioners. So for your reading question, we put down that it had to do with economics. You can also put from that very first paragraph that we read is that it was a distinctive social system in which the cultures were put together into groups. So it may have been because they were expanding and getting other people in their civilization, like other types of people in their civilization. All right, your next question says, what is the difference between Varna and Jati as expressions of caste? So we just talked about Varna, and that meant classes. Let's look at the next section to see if we can get your answer. So here we go. As the Varna system took shape in India, another set of social distinctions distinctions also arose, based largely on occupations. In India, as elsewhere, urban-based civilization gave rise to specialized occupations. Many organized in guilds and regulated their own affairs in a particular region. Over time, these occupationally based groups, known as jatis, blended with the Varna system to create India's unique caste-based society. The many thousands of jatis, became the primary cell of India's social life beyond the family or the household, but each of them was associated with one of the great classes or varnas. Thus, Brahmins were divided into many separate jatis or sub-castes, as were each of the other varnas, as well as the untouchables. In a particular region or village, each jati was ranked in a hierarchy known to all, from the highest of the Brahmins to the lowest of the untouchables. Marriage and eating together were permitted only within an individual's own jati. Each jati was associated with a particular set of duties, rules, or obligations, which defined its members' unique and separate place in the larger society. Brahmins, for example, were forbidden to eat meat, while kasutras were permitted to do so. Upper caste women covered their breast, while some lower caste women were forbidden this privilege as a sign of their subordination. It is better to do one's own duty badly than another's well. This frequently quoted saying summed up the underlying idea of Indian society. All right, so basically the Varna was the class and the Jatis were like subclasses underneath that, further dividing them by occupation. So that's how you would answer that question. Let's go on to the next paragraph. It says, with its many separate, distinct, and hierarchically ranked social groups, Indian society was different from that of China or the Greco-Roman world. Here's another chance to do some bullet points. So for your topic for this, I would write down 
Indian society versus China and Greco-Roman. And it says, it was also unique in the set of ideas that explain and justify that social system. Foremost among them was the notion of ritual purity and pollution applied to caste groups. Brahmins or other high caste people who came in contact with members of lower caste, especially those who cleaned latrines, handled corpses, or butchered and skinned dead animals, were in great danger of being polluted or made ritually unclean. Thus, untouchables were forbidden to use wells or to enter the temples designated for higher caste people. Sometimes they were required to wear a wooden clapper to warn others of their approach. A great body of Indian religious writing defined various forms of impurity, and the ritual means of purification. So the biggest difference is that the untouchables literally could not be touched by the upper classes. They had to stay separate, and they weren't allowed to be around the upper classes, otherwise the upper classes might be polluted. A further support for this idea of inherent equality and permanent difference derived from emerging Hindu notions of karma, dharma, and rebirth. So I remember for question one that was talking about what are the ideas that this system is based on, put this down for question one, the Hindu notions of karma, dharma, and rebirth. And then it's going to explain what those are. So it says, being born into a particular caste was generally regarded as reflecting the good or bad deeds, karma, of a previous life. So there's your definition for karma. Thus, an individual's prior actions were responsible for his or her current status. Any hope for rebirth in a higher caste rested on the faithful and selfless performance of one's present caste duties, dharma, in this life. So in order to be rebirthed, into a better caste later, you had to be a good person in the caste that you currently were in. Doing so contributed to spiritual progress by subduing the relentless demands of the ego. Such teachings like that of permanent impurity provided powerful sanctions for the inequalities of Indian society. That just basically means that they were able to keep them in line because they could constantly remind them Hey, if you want to be rebirthed into a better class next time, you better do what you're supposed to do. It was like a means of control. Okay, let's go on. It says, so too did the threat of social ostracism because each jati had the authority to expel members who violated its rules. No greater catastrophe could befall a person than this, for it meant the end of any recognized social life and the loss of all social support. So they also kept control over them by threatening to kick them out of their jati. As caste restrictions tightened, it became increasingly difficult, virtually impossible, for individuals to raise their social status during their lifetimes. So that means during your lifetime, there's no social mobility. However, another kind of upward mobility enabled entire jatis several uh, over several generations to raise their standing in the local hierarchy of caste groups by acquiring land and wealth by adopting the behaviors of higher caste groups by finding some previously overlooked ancestor of a higher caste a particular jati might slowly be redefined in a higher category india's caste system 
was in practice rather more fluid and changing than the theory of caste might suggest. So there were some possibilities, but it was very hard. And that last paragraph says, India's social system thus differed from that of China in several ways. Ooh, here's some more bullet points. So I would put India's social system versus China's social system. It gave priority to religious status and racial purity, the Brahmins. That's the first bullet point. Whereas China elevated political office, uh, officials to the highest elite positions. So in India, the highest position was, were the Brahmins, which was religious, whereas in China, it was political officials. The caste system divided Indian society into vast numbers of distinct social groups. China had fewer but broader categories of society, such as scholar gentry, landlords, peasants, and merchants. Finally, India's caste society defined these social groups far more rigidly, that means like strict, and with even less opportunity for social mobility than India. So those are three really good bullet points that you want to put in your toolbox if we ever do an essay on this. All right, your next paragraph is about functions of caste. And we are also looking out for your next reading question, which is, how did the inequalities of slavery differ from those of caste? And how did Greco-Roman slavery differ from that of other classical civilizations? That's what we're looking for. All right, this caste-based social structure shaped India's emerging civilization in various ways. Because caste, or jati, was a very local phenomenon rooted in particular regions or villages, it focused the loyalties of most people on a quiet, restricted territory and weakened the appeal or authority of larger all-Indian states. This localization is one reason that India, unlike China, seldom experienced an empire that encompassed the entire subcontinent. So let's look at that again. What is the reason why India didn't have a big empire? It says right here, because the jati was more localized. So the loyalties of most people on a quite uh, restricted territory and weakened the appeal or authority of larger all Indian states. So everything was more local. It's more like city states, kind of like what was in Greece, right? Everything's more local. That's important to remember. Unlike China, that have this huge empire. Cast together with the shared culture of a diverse Hinduism provided a substitute for the state as an integrative mechanism for Indian civilization. So that's another reason they never became a big empire because Hinduism was so diverse. It offered a distinct and social recognized place for almost everyone. In looking after widows, orphans, and the destitute, jatis provided a modest measure of social security and support. Even the lowest ranking jatis had the right to certain payments from the social superiors whom they served. Furthermore, caste represented a means of accommodating the many migrating or invading peoples who entered the subcontinent. The cellular or honeycomb structure of caste society allowed various peoples, cultures, and traditions to find a place within a larger Indian civilization while retaining something of their unique identity. The process of assimilation was quite different in China, where it meant becoming Chinese ethnically, linguistically, and culturally. So basically it's saying India kind of absorbed people because they had a place for them in this caste society. Whereas China, you had to become Chinese. 
And then lastly, it says, finally, India's caste system facilitated the exploitation of the poor by the wealthy and the powerful. Exploitation just means that they took advantage of the poor. The multitude of separate groups into which it divided the impoverished and opposed majority of the population made class consciousness and organized resistance against caste lines much more difficult to achieve. All right, our next section is on slavery, and that is our next question. Let's look at those questions again just to have them in our mind. It says, how did the inequalities of slavery differ from those of caste, and how did Greco-Roman slavery differ from those of the other classical civilizations? So here we go. Beyond the inequalities of class and caste lay those of slavery, a social institution with deep roots in human history. Some have suggested that the early domestication of animals provided the model for enslaving people. Certainly, slave owners have everywhere compared their slaves to tamed animals. Aristotle, for example, observed that the ox is the poor man's slave. War, patriarchy, and the notion of private property, all of which accompanied the first civilizations, also contributed to the growth of slavery. Large-scale warfare generated numer numerous prisoners, and everywhere in the ancient world, capture in war meant the possibility of enslavement. Early records suggest that women captives were the first slaves, usually raped and then enslaved as concubines, whereas male captives were killed. Concubines just means like a wife without being married. So a man might have one wife and several concubines. Patriarchal societies in which men sharply controlled and perhaps even owned women may have suggested the possibility of using other people, men as well as women, as slaves. The class inequalities of early civilizations, which were based on great differences in privately owned property, also made it possible to imagine people owning other people. Whatever its precise origins, slavery generally meant ownership by a master, the possibility of being sold, working without pay, and the status of an outsider at this bottom of the social hierarchy. For most, it was a kind of social death, for slaves usually lacked any rights or independent personal identity recognized by the larger society. By the time Hammurabi's law code casually referred to Mesopotamian slavery, it was already a long-established tradition in the region and in all the first civilizations. Likewise, virtually all subsequent civilizations in the Americas, Africa, and Eurasia practiced some form of slavery. Slave systems throughout history have varied considerably. In some times and places, such as ancient Greece and Rome, a fair number of slaves might be emancipated in their own lifetimes through the generosity or religious convictions of their owners, or to avoid caring for them in old age, or by allowing slaves to purchase their freedom with their own funds. So that answers your question about, let's see, how did Greco-Roman slavery differ from other civilizations? You can put down that in Greece and Rome, sometimes they were allowed to purchase their freedom or to be emancipated within their lifetime. Then it says, in some societies, the children of slaves inherited the status of their parents, while in others, such as the Aztec Empire, they were considered free people. You can make a note of that, the Aztec Empire considered the children of slaves free. Slaves likewise varied considerably in the labor they were required to do, with some working for the state in high positions, 
others performing domestic duties in their owner's household, and still others toiling in fields or mines or in large work gangs. In second wave civilizations of Eurasia differed considerably in the prominence and extent of slavery in their society. In China, it was a minor element, amounting to perhaps 1% of the population. Put a bullet point down that says that. Convicted criminals and their families confiscated by the government and sometimes sold to wealthy private individuals were among the earliest slaves in Han Dynasty China. In desperate circumstances, impoverished or indebted peasants might sell their children into slavery. In southern China, teenage boys of poor families could be purchased by the wealthy for whom they served as status symbols. Chinese slavery, however, was never very widespread and did not become a major source of labor for agriculture or manufacturing. So that would be a good difference to put in your toolbox for later when you have to do an essay. In India as well, people could fall into slavery as criminals, debtors, or prisoners of war and serve their masters largely in domestic settings. But religious writings and secular law offered, at least in theory, some protection for slaves. So put down for India that they had a little bit of protection through laws. Owners were required to provide adequately for their slaves and were forbidden to abandon them in old age. According to one ancient text, a man may go short himself or stint his wife and children, but never his slave who does his dirty work for him. Slaves in India could inherit and own property and earn money in their spare time. A master who raped a slave woman was required to set her free and pay compensation. The law encouraged owners to free their slaves and allowed slaves to buy their freedom. All of this suggests that Indian slavery was more restrained than that of other ancient civilizations. Nor did Indian civilization depend economically on slavery, for most work was performed by lower caste, though free men and women. So you can put down that slavery in India was never the main source of the economy. All right, the next section is going to talk a little bit more about Rome. But before we go on to that, let's look at this question that said, how did the inequalities of slavery differ from those of caste? So let's think about that one for a minute because they don't come right out and say it. You have to take what you read previously and kind of compare it. So remember that slaves are a possession, whereas members of the caste system have their position recognized by a social hierarchy. So that would be one difference. Slaves are owned and sold. Unlike people in the caste system, that doesn't happen. Slaves can work without pay and they lack rights, whereas uh, the caste system, you have a personal identity. So those are just some differences. You could also think about how the slaves have a master, whereas if you're in a caste, you don't really have a master. So those are some bullet points that you could discuss with that, and any more that you could think of. All right, we're going to go on to the next one about Roman slavery, and this is uh, the section that our question is about how Greco-Roman slavery differs. So, in sharp contrast to other second-wave civilizations, slavery played an immense role in the Mediterranean or Western world. So put down that slavery played a big part in the Mediterranean or Western world. Alright, we're going to keep going. It says, although slavery was practiced in Chinese, Indian, and Persian civilizations, in the Greco-Roman world society, it was based on slavery. By conservative estimate, 
ca uh, classical Athens alone was home to perhaps 60,000 slaves, or about one-third of the total population. In Athens, ironically, the growth of democracy and status as a free person were defined and accompanied by the s simultaneous growth of slavery on a mass scale. The greatest of the Greek philosophers, Aristotle, developed the notion that some people were slaves by nature and should be enslaved for their own good and for that of the larger society. The ancient Greek attitude towards slavery was simple, writes one modern scholar. It was a terrible thing to become a slave, but a good thing to own a slave. So basically, if you were a slave, it wasn't good, but if you had slaves, it was awesome. Even poor households usually had at least one or two female slaves, providing domestic work and sexual services for their owners. Although substantial numbers of Greek slaves were granted freedom by their owners, they usually did not become citizens or gain political rights, nor could they own land or marry citizens. And particularly in Athens, they had to pay a special tax. Their status remained halfway between slavery and freedom. Practiced on an even larger scale, slavery was a defining element of Roman society. By the time of Christ, the Italian heartland of the Roman Empire had some 2 to 3 million slaves, representing 33 to 40 percent of the population. That's a lot. Not until the modern slave societies of the Caribbean, Brazil, and the southern United States was slavery practiced again on such an enormous scale. Wealthy Romans could own many hundreds or even thousands of slaves. One woman in the 5th century CE freed 8,000 slaves when she withdrew into a life of Christian monastic practice. Even people of modest means frequently owned two or three slaves. In doing so, they confirmed their own position as free people, demonstrating their social status, and expressed their ability to exercise power. Slaves and former slaves also might be slave owners. One freedman during the reign of Augustus owned 4,116 slaves at the time of his death. So the reasons they did this, they had a position, they showed social status, and they expressed their power. The vast majority of Roman slaves had been prisoners captured in the many wars that accompanied the creation of the empire. In 146 BCE, following the destruction of the North African city of Carthage, some 55,000 people were enslaved in mass. From all over the Mediterranean basin, men and women were funneled into the major slave-owning regions of Italy and Sicily. Pirates also furnished slaves, kidnapping tens of thousands and selling them to Roman slave traders on the island of Delos. Roman merchants purchased still other slaves through networks of long-distance commerce, extending to the Black Sea and the East African coast, and northwestern Europe. The supply of slaves also occurred through natural reproduction as the children of slave mothers were regarded as slaves themselves. Such home-born slaves had a certain prestige and were thought to be less troublesome than those who had known freedom earlier in their lives. Finally, abandoned or exposed children could legally become the slave of anyone who rescued them. Unlike American slavery of later times, Roman practice was not identified with a particular racial or ethnic group. Egyptians, Syrians, Jews, Greeks, Gauls, North Africans, and many other people found themselves alike enslaved. From within the empire and its adjacent regions, an enormous diversity of people were brought, bought and sold, 
on the Roman slave markets. So that's an important difference that you need to put down. It wasn't racially exclusive or based on one ethnic group. Like slave owners everywhere, Romans regarded their slaves as barbarians, lazy, unreliable, immoral, prone to thieving, and came to think of certain people such as Asiatic Greeks, Syrians, and Jews as slaves by nature. Nor was there any serious criticism of slavery in particular. Although on occasion, owners were urged to treat their slaves in a more benevolent way or kinder way, even the triumph of Christianity within the Roman Empire did little to undermine slavery. For Christian teachings held that slaves should be submissive to their masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. In fact, St. Paul used the metaphor of slavery to describe the relationship of believers to God, styling them as slaves of Christ, while St. Augustine described slavery as God's punishment for sin. Thus, slavery was deeply embedded in the religious thinking and social outlook of elite Romans. So you could put that down as a difference, that slavery was embedded in their religious beliefs. Similarly, slavery was entrenched throughout the Roman economy. So put down that it was um, the basis of the Roman economy. No occupation was off limits to slave except military service, and no distinction existed between jobs for slaves and those for free people. Frequently, they labored side by side. In rural areas, slaves provided much of the labor force on the huge estates, or latifundia, which produced grain, olive oil, and wine, mostly for export, much like the later plantations of the Americas. There, they often worked chained together. In the city, slaves worked in their owners' households, but also as skilled artisans, teachers, doctors, business agents, entertainers, and actors. Artisan would be like someone who has a skilled trade, such as a craftsman. In the empire's many mines and quarries, slaves and criminals labored under brutal conditions. Slaves in the service of the emperor provided manpower for the state bureaucracy, maintained temples and shrines, and kept Rome's water supply system functioning. Trained in special schools, they also served as gladiators in the violent spectacles of Roman public life. Female slaves usually served as domestic servants, but were also put to work in brothels, served as actresses and entertainers, and could be used sexually by their male owners. Thus, slaves were represented among the highest and most prestigious occupations and in the lowest and most degraded. So their jobs are very diverse. Slave owners in the Roman Empire were supposed to provide the necessities of life to their slaves. When this occurred, slaves may have had a more secure life than was available to impoverished free people, who had to fend for themselves. But the price of this security was absolute subjection to the will of the master. Beatings, sexual abuse, and sale to another owner were constant possibilities. Lacking all rights in the law, slaves could not legally marry, although many contracted unofficial unions. Slaves often accumulated money or possessions, but such property legally belonged to their masters and could be seized at any time. If a slave murdered his master, Roman law dema demanded the lives of all the victims' slaves. When one Roman official was killed by a slave in 61 CE, every one of his 400 slaves were condemned to death. For an individual slave, the quality of life depended almost entirely on the character of the master. 
Brutal owners made it a living hell. Benevolent owners made life tolerable and might even grant favored slaves their freedom or prevent them to buy their freedom. As in Greece, manumission of slaves was a widespread practice, and in the Roman Empire, unlike Greece, freedom was accompanied by citizenship. Manumission just means releasing a slave, so put down that in Greece, when slaves were freed, they also got their citizenship. However, they did not in Rome. So in the AP key concepts, it talks about how you need to know the different social hierarchies and how uh, the functions of enslaved peoples were around the world. So I would just go back through there and do some bullet points of some of the functions that they took on in the Roman Empire, just to give yourself some specifics about that topic. And the last paragraph of this section talks about resistance and rebellion. You can read that one on your own and kind of look at the ways that they resisted the ruling powers. That's where we're going to stop today for this edition of the Time Machine Talk Show. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, I'm available after school Monday through Thursday, 4 to 5 in the Learning Commons. Hope to see you there.